0: the first time that I met my friend Mike here that's going to come up and speak was actually through Skype interview uh, where he was an army chaplain. And so I'm sitting, he's in, uh, I believe, uh, somewhere that was undisclosed. I think it might have been Iraq. But uh, as he's sitting uh, on the other side of this screen, not only do I start to hear uh, someone that I can relate to, uh, when I come to meet him in person, I find out all the overlapping experiences that we've had, um, both in terms of loving to run and loving to draw and um, having some quirks, but also in terms of being uh, college swimmers and being athletes and then being people that have a heart for God. And I remember when Mike told me one story that just made me put him from friend to like someone that, uh, those younger than me that I look up to was when he told the story, um, I said I wouldn't embarrass you, uh, and uh, so I won't, but he told the story of going to a swimming party in college, and uh, some girls had decided to have too much to drink, and instead of joining in in what they did, he just really politely, gently, and with full integrity took them off their little stage that they had made and said, no, 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 there's, there's a better way to live. So would you welcome Mike up as he comes and shares about living in a better way?
1: Thank you, Rob. And uh, it is a privilege, it's a pleasure to be with you here today. And uh, I've I've spoken here before, but I'm in a unique season of life right now. And uh, it's just good to be here Uh, last week. Last Sunday, I preached at a church about the size of Restoration Covenant, three hours west of the Twin Cities, almost exclusively farming community, and uh, it's kind of a neat contrast just to see how different we people are in uh, rural and urban settings and suburban settings, and yet we are all the same in this. We are desperately in need of Jesus, and so we're going to talk about a story that Jesus told today from Luke's Gospel And let me paraphrase the first part and as we look at that story, we're going to look at an ancient letter that came later, a man named Paul wrote to a young leader named Timothy and that letter will give us insight into the words that Jesus spoke and that are recorded in Luke. So here's the story. Two guys come to Jesus in a very practical matter. They say, hey, Jesus, we've got a disagreement My brother here won't give me my fair share of the inheritance. Something that would happen in every century happens today. People are fighting over money. Maybe you have an experience like that if you have uh, uh, fought with siblings over, over something. And Jesus basically says, who made me the judge of you? And he follows it up with a story. And he said, there was once a very ambitious man. And this man went to work to make a lot of money, and he was successful. He had a great crop. The currency of the time was food that would keep and storage of grain, and he looked at his barns, which were not big enough to hold all of his abundance, all of his profits, so he tore down the barns, and he built bigger barns in their place, and I'm sure the, the crowd hearing the story is thinking, wow, that is wasteful. That is insane. You You, you have more resources that you could ev- than you could ever consume in, a, in 10 lifetimes and, and you tear down a structure just to hold it all and, and Jesus goes on and he says this man was pleased with himself. He sat down and thought I, I can take it easy. I can kick back. I, I've got it made. And then Jesus changes the tone and it gets harsh. If we can get the scripture on the, the screen But God said to this man, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. That probably stopped those two brothers in their tracks. It should and does stop us in our tracks. But in the time we have left I want to ask and answer a question. That peculiar phrase, rich towards God. Rich towards God. What does that mean? And there's a lot of answers that I'm, I'm certain you could supply here if you've been here at Restoration for the last few weeks. I, I understand from Rob that, that you've talked about having an open-handed approach to the resources that God has entrusted you with. So surely the answer to that question must be, in part, having open hands, realizing God is the giver of all good things, being generous, getting out of debt to the best of your ability so you have margin to give and to bless people with, simplifying. All those answers would be true, but let me just offer two specific answers that we can spend a little time on. One answer to that question is to see the trap To see the trap. The other answer is to fix your hope. To fix your hope. Let's talk about both of those in light of this letter that Paul writes to Timothy. It's called 1 Timothy. If you're new to the whole church thing, it's a a very practical letter that a leader is writing to his successor, to his mentee. And let me read from the the 6th chapter... Starting at verse 9, he writes to Timothy and he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Isn't that an awesome piece of wisdom? We could camp out there all day if we wanted to. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. He's actually paraphrasing or quoting Job, the book of Job there, who says, naked I came into the world and naked I will go out of the world, God But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that, says Paul. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And then I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 17. Command those who are rich, Timothy, in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Really, what you just heard read is, is interesting because he's addressing Two groups of people. One group of people is arguably not rich, but they'd like to be rich. They're maybe not poor, but they're just people who desire to be rich, to have it made, to find the good life, to have enough grain in the barn to not worry, to feel secure. The the other group of people that he addressed in in verses um, 17 and on, the second part of that reading, it's the rich people. It's the people who are rich now. If if you grew up thinking Christianity is saying nobody can have abundance, you're not allowed to be rich, this flies in the face of that because notice he doesn't say command those who are rich to not be rich, to deplete all their resources. He's actually writing to, hey, some of you are not rich and you're going to fall into the trap of wanting to be rich. Some of you are rich and you're going to have a different kind of trap. Your tendency, your temptation will be to put your hope in your abundance. Don't do that, he says, because your abundance could be taken away from you. That grain could all spoil or be burned. Your life could end a lot shorter than you thought it would end. And all you'll have to show in the coming age was a bunch of striving to try to put your hope in wealth. So let's talk about the trap. The Greek word, the New Testament's written in Greek for this word trap in chapter 6 is uh, translated snare in some translations. It's a technical kind of trap. It has a connotation of an actual device that used to catch little birds. If people wanted to catch a bird. They would make this type of trap and they would conceal the loop of the snare and the bird would come and perch and it would catch the bird. In other words, it's a trap that you don't see coming. Now that's really interesting, I think, because that's really what Paul is saying money is like, specifically the love of money. If you were to keep reading in this part, this is where that famous verse that is always misquoted comes in. The love of money is the root of all evil. We tend to botch that up and say, after all, money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says, the love of of money is the root of all evil. Or, in other words, it's a trap. Now, why is it a trap? Well, it's a trap because you can't see it. And think about what that means. When you can't see something coming at you, it's, it's deadly. For example, if you're struggling with sexual sin, adultery, you, you kind of know that, right? I mean, she's my wife. Anyone else is not my wife. That's kind of cut and dry. And so people will come to me and Rob as, pa- as pastors and confess, hey, I'm struggling with pornography or um, I've had an affair. That is so black and white and obvious. Nobody has ever come to me. Maybe you're different, Rob. No one's ever said, I'm struggling with a, a love of money and greed. <laughs> they just don't confess that because we don't see it most of the time. You could say it like this. Greed, like pride, is one of the carbon dioxide type of sins. It's silent. It's deadly. And by the time you're aware that you have it, oftentimes consequences are already racking up in your life. If you were to read uh, the whole letter, First Timothy, there's one word that appears very frequently. It's translated a little differently depending on context because it's really hard to translate It is sometimes translated lust, which makes you think of sexual sin, lust. Sometimes it's translated desire, and sometimes it's even translated love. Why the difference in this old Greek word that Paul is using? It's epithumio in the Greek, and we don't have a word for it in English. And this word is really helpful to understand how your own heart works and and why... You've had some painful run-ins with money in your life. Epithumio would be translated like supercharged desire. Desire that is out of control. Desire that will continue to have diminishing returns. Like an addiction, you'll need more and more of it to get the same benefit. Epithumio is a desire that is not properly prioritized in your life. And the scriptures, time and time again, would would point to that concept as saying, uh, in other terms, idolatry. It's when you have this desire that outranks your desire to relate to the creator. (laughs) So think about how that works with this trap of money, this silent snare that can get you. If you make money, and the pursuit of money, and, and the desire to be rich and wealthy epithumio, over-desire, you're going to need more of it. And this comes out in every one of our lives, even if we we wouldn't admit that we're greedy. It comes up in my life. At one point, I liked Folgers. It just did it for me. You know, Folgers was fine. And it's so cheap, they give it away, right? (laughs) And then my brother-in-law, who's like a professional barista, he like does competitions, opened my eyes to a whole new world of really good coffee. And they don't give it away. (laughs) Like, my station wagon probably could be traded in for a few bags of the the coffee. And and it is arguably so much better that now Folgers taste terrible to me. I would almost rather be tired. So <laughs> that wasn't always true, but but what was a luxury, a necessity, and became a luxury, and then it became that luxury became a necessity, and that's how it works in so many areas of your life and mine. Ikea furniture's awesome until you buy a couch from Room and Board, and then you're like, wow, that, yeah, we, let's not buy stuff from Ikea. <laughs> On a separate note, it's really hard to put Ikea furniture together. I, I, always, <laughs> I always thought that a great premarital counseling exercise, like a session, would just to take the couple and give them like a complex ikea piece of furniture and like one allen wrench not two and be like have at it you know because <laughs> that's how real life works in marriage but <laughs> so where are you at with the trap it's hard right it's carbon monoxide it, it kills and it's silent this greed this lust this over desire of money but but try do a little assessment in your own heart have you told your own heart recently, gosh, if I got a promotion at work, if if we made 10 grand more, or fill in the blank, I think I think we'd really be happy. I think we'll be happy when we got a, I hate this car. If we got a good car, wow. Then things would be pretty awesome actually. You know, if we if we didn't have to worry about clipping coupons, if we could eat out at that restaurant more often. If I could be more generous, and just be lavishly generous, so I need to make more money. It can come in that subtle form as well, but remember, you and I, when we think that way, are no different than the bird who quietly, carefully lands and the snare snaps around the bird. It's a trap. He goes on to say, in that context of trap, he says foolish, he says the word temptation, and this foolish word should should put some lights up if we are familiar with the scripture in the hebrew scriptures the word fool is a technical term for someone who is wise in his or her own eyes self important so part of this trap is that when you do get the money you wanted it's not enough and so you need more but in addition to that you become a fool who puts his or her hope, security, safety, sense of well-being, value, identity in that money. And Jesus hits it right on the head with that story. The rich man says, now I can take it easy. Drink, eat, be merry. I have nothing to worry about. And it's taken away. He becomes a fool. Think about this. It's hard to see it in yourself. So, I just give us all permission to judge other people for a moment. Just don't say their name out loud. Think about someone you know who is wealthy and got really wealthy, relatively speaking. And I I know we're all very rich. Rob did a great job of covering that in week one. If you make $50,000 as a household income, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world, in our planet, right? But for our purposes, think of someone who's better off than you. And when they got money and more money, something ugly happened. They became an expert in all sorts of areas that they knew nothing about. (laughs) Do you you know the person? Do you have a name? I'll give you one. Mike. This became my reality when I came back off of active duty from Iraq. I had a fair amount of money. My wife was uh, working at a, a theater, and she made good money, and we had no kids, double income, no kids. They don't tax you when you're in combat. Imagine your paycheck with no taxes taken from. It. That's a bigger number. And we had a nice house in South Minneapolis, and we had the money to furnish it and do improvements on it. And I got to the point in those construction projects where I started to convince myself because I was doing pretty well financially and I felt pretty good about myself vocationally. We had no debt and you know, I started to give myself the credit for that. All of a sudden, I find myself arguing with contractors and plumbers and electricians and kind of pointing things out to them or at least acting subtly like I knew what I was doing. What was happening to me? I became an expert I was starting to become foolish in my own mind. Money can do that to you. Money can make you prideful. That's a trap. If you see the trap, it won't catch you. So see the trap. Maybe you're here this morning because God wants to save you from yourself because you're about to land on the trap. And you've told your heart for some time now, I'm gonna be happy when I get that next purchase when I get better clothes, when I get another stall in the garage, when we do that addition, when my flat screen is thinner than their flat screen, when I get the gadget I want, when I have the money to travel where I want to travel, then I will be happy, so I will do whatever it takes and work hard to get it. And maybe God is warning you and saying, that might go well for you initially. You might get the flat screen, you might take the trip, you might find the financial margin and security, you might fill up your 401k, you might get out of debt. And these things, they're not bad, but what would happen if then you got self-important in your own eyes and you started to become blind to who you really are and what you really bring to the table? You lost your teachability and people pulled away from you relationally because you had this arrogance about you, this self Importance. You knew better. How many parents in the room? Raise your hand if you're a parent. What would you not do to save your children from becoming that type of person? Now remember, Paul is clearly saying it's okay to be rich. There's a lot of really godly, righteous, rich people in the Bible, Job, Abraham. <laughs> we could we could talk a, a lot about people who had means and that in both the old and the new testament but like you want your kids to be delivered from the snare to avoid the trap of over desire of saying i'll be happy when i have the money and becoming arrogant and prideful god the perfectly heaven the perfect heavenly father so wants to deliver you and me from that so we avoid the trap and we fix our hope and the hope part is a lot shorter. There's not too much to say about it. Do you know that the most important thing in your life is your hope? What you place your hope in. Hope is, is a, a term for security. What do you rest in? It'll be okay because we have this. That's your hope. I can get through this week. I can get through this illness because I have this. What is your hope? My hope is being challenged right now, to, to get a bit personal. I, I'm in between jobs. That That's never been true for me in my whole life. And I'm grateful in a weird way, because it's, it's an intense opportunity for me to ask that question, and I can't squirm out of it. When life is going really well, whenever, when the money is coming in, when the, the praise is coming in, when you feel like... Uh, You're you're basically getting an A in the courses that make up your life. It's easy to say, yes, my hope is in God, the eternal creator, sustainer, and redeemer, of course. I come to church a lot. Heck, I serve on the coffee cart team. Um, I definitely give like 3% of my income. Well, maybe two, but yes, my hope is in God. But when something that was your functional hope is taken away, like your job, like your spouse, like your health, like your dream, like your your identity that was based on one of those things, when that's taken away, like your money, then then the answer is a little harder, but a little more accurate. You you just either are hoping in God or you're not. This is why, by the way, Jesus said, actually the poor no, they're blessed. They've got it good in this way. They will put their hope on the kingdom of God, God's rule and sovereign control on the life that is to come because the substitutes, the alternatives are not that attractive. What else are they going to put their hope on? Sleeping outside and being cold, being hungry? No, that, that's, that's not a tempting thing to put your hope on. This Word command is strong, is it not? Verse 17 says, command, not suggest, not even convince. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. We covered that. Not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Some of you are deeply anxious because you wish you had started saving for your kid's college and you never did or you didn't enough or you you look at your retirement account that got drastically reduced or wiped out or doesn't exist and you are so fearful and that's why you can't give and that's why you don't take risks. This verse says don't put your hope in that. Whether you have it or you don't have it. If you don't have it, don't make that an inordinate desire that drives you into this small, shallow, scared little life. If you do have it, don't put your hope in that because you could die t- tonight. And if you did, as you look back on how you spent the hours of today, what, what regrets would you have? If, if you look back on your life and you said, I could have been radically generous in this scenario, but I didn't. There's, and I don't know because I've not died, there's going to be something like a real sense of retrospective regret. Even for those of us who are in Christ and in his arms and in heaven, we will somehow get the opportunity to see the chances that we missed. Now, every tear is going to be wiped away in heaven, so don't don't get too stressed out. But we'll see it, and we'll miss it, and we'll say, how could I have put so much time into shopping, into waxing my car?" into trading up houses constantly when, when what really mattered was people and loving them and, and, and putting my hope in God. Now, I've had to ask myself, and I do now, okay, Mike, take your own medicine. How do you put your hope in God? Are you putting your hope in God? Some days are better than others. But on this Palm Sunday, this is how I'm going to do it, and you're welcome to, to just follow along. This is how I choose to put my hope in God. I think about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the richest being in the universe, who always was and and will never not be, who gave up those riches to take on the form of a human body, and he wasn't born in a palace, though he is the King of Kings. He was born in a slum, who wasn't given a crown until he was given a crown of thorns while he was being tortured who gave up abundance to embrace poverty for our sake. Not because poverty is a good thing, but because it was a way to purchase us, to convince Mike and fill your name in here that hope in anything but God is useless, is foolish. I think about this Jesus going towards Jerusalem I think about how he rode not on a, a stallion or a war horse, but on a donkey, the most humble, the most poor, the equivalent to a 1987 Crown Victoria without the bumper on it and rust all over it. And he rides in, and I think about how he explained to his disciples on this Palm Sunday so long ago, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm, it's not going to turn out how you think. They're going to betray me and kill me, but I will rise again. And, they're, and, and the disciples are like, "No, we've seen what you can do. The crowds love you. Go in there, knock Rome out. You see, we'll be happy when we have enough money and not not have to pay taxes to Rome. So, like, we need that. Um, it's all consuming for us. So, whatever, Jesus. But we'll follow you. And, and then." this Jesus on the donkey is looking as the crowds are taking off the one or two garments that they have and they throw it on the ground. Lavish, generous praise. But in his mind, he knows the same people will pick those garments up, shake them on, put them on, and within days be crying for my blood, crucify him. And I think about this God who became a human being who lived in poverty when he is the richest being in the in the universe who lived a perfect life and who was given the judgment of all human beings in all of history who had not lived a perfect life. And I think about how he came in humbly when I am so resistant to come in humbly. And I think about this Jesus who would then pay the ultimate price. And when I fix my eyes on on that kind of love, a small little conviction grows this God is not distant Mike this God when he reveals through the Bible that godliness with contentment is great gain he means it he means if you put your hope in God's love for you in the, the age to come this, this incredible claim that hurts my brain and yours that when you die you will rise again and you will live forever you're going to be 30,000 years old So don't get too stressed out that your 30th birthday party didn't go that great. You will live forever with him. And some of you don't believe that, and I know. But what is your alternative thesis? Why do you want that to be true so bad in your heart? Because it is true. And we can be with him. And if that is true, it makes all the sense in the world for Paul to write to Timothy In this way, when you're generous, when you share, when you hold loosely to your worldly goods, when you think a lot about God and not about stuff, when you love people instead of loving profit, in this way, they will, you will, I will lay up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I'm going to close with this. Some of you have had moments, or you will, when you're sitting on a beach in Cancun or fill in your happy place right, right there, and you turn to somebody significant, and you say, this is the life. This is a good life. But as time fades and goes on and marches on and one day melts into the next and a month into a month and years into years, you actually look back and you say, that was good. But to be brutally honest, it wasn't as good as I hoped it would be. I was a bit disappointed. Maybe the next trip will be better. And so I think as we age, for the most part, and we experience loss, and change, and disappointment, we say less and less, for most of us, this is the good life. Because things are falling apart in the sin-soaked world we live in. And so that brings me, and you, or it Will, to the point where we have to ask, well, what is the good life? That's just a different way of saying, what are we gonna put our hope in? And might I humbly, and I say humbly, because that, I'm, I'm humbled in my current life status, May I humbly implore, suggest, compel you, whether you're rich or poor, whether you want to be rich or you're, you're putting your hope in your riches or not, would you today and this Easter put your hope in the incredible, unchangeable, immovable, bulletproof love of God? The God who made the heavens and earth, the God who made you, the God who's walked with you through every blundering, episode of your life and would you rest in his arms no matter what is in your 401k no matter what is in your wallet, no matter how much debt you have no matter how afraid you are that there just won't be enough might you rest in his arms simply because he became poor for you and he loves you that much I'm going to invite the band up here And I'm going to, as they walk up, just give us a moment of silence as we just steady our hearts. And I will pray for us. God, this is a heavy subject, this whole idea of money and hope and putting our, our functional hope in money. Forgive us, forgive me, forgive us for walking into the snare over and over again. Lord, would you unsnare us by your grace and your truth? Would the teaching of the scripture be not just a a talk that someone gives, but a catalyst for life change? Would the snare come off? Would we see reality not like a fool, but like a teachable person pursuing godliness? And, And would the result just be this deep, contentment, even though we don't know how it's going to turn out, contentment that is not based in circumstances, would you give us that? Would you give us that same contentment that you must have displayed, that poise on your face as you rode into the crowds that would, in day's time, call for your unjust torture and execution? For my brothers and sisters who are just weary today and, and discouraged for financial reasons, would you give them the courage to hope in you. Would you make plain for them the folly of hoping in anything else? You are our rock and our Redeemer. We put our hope in you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name.